0: crew no 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 i'm
1: at home in london where in london um northwest london between uh swiss cottage and west
0: Hampstead. Ooh, very swish i know that roundabout very well the roundabout when you come off the m1 oh indeed yes. yeah this cottage roundabout yeah. is what it's called yeah no i'm a cute and there's the odeon there i think mum and dad went on dates when they were younger at that odeon if we're talking films did you see the jackie charlton Documentary. Uh, do you know,
1: I didn't last, I saw about 10 minutes of it. I forgot
0: it was on, but I'm going to watch it on iPlayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read the reviews this morning and um, and cursed myself last night for missing it. Well, things are available in perpetuity. I know Jackie Charlton as the island manager, because I grew up after Middlesbrough, after Sheffield Wednesday, after England, okay. after Leeds. Yeah, but yeah. Has Crewe produced a better centre-back than Jack Charlton?
1: <laughs> certainly not i think centre-back over over his history has been one of the weaker positions as it were in terms of
0: the class players we've uh, we've produced yeah. yeah it seems to have produced a lot of fours eights and tens i don't know what it is about the center of midfield that makes the gresty road academy so delightful
1: I think was the sort of football Grady always wanted to play, Dario Grady always wanted to play, you know, the passing game. So I think he always put a, um, I suspect anyway, even if it was slightly unconscious, I think he always put uh, a lot of emphasis on the boys with technical skill, good
0: passing, which obviously make good midfield players. That is something we will talk about. You were my, unfortunately, second choice, uh, because I went to the host of the Railwaymen podcast. And Stuart, he, yeah. Stuart. And, and he said, look, I've talked about whatever you want to talk about. But Charles Morris has written this book called Generation Game. Um, yeah. And I've, I've written on the top of my notepad, no slander. That applies more to me than to you. Uh, because you've, you're very experienced at avoiding libel. Because you... Yes. You trained as a journalist?
1: Uh, That's right, I was a journalist all my working life, yes.
0: Did you start in the era of the typesetting?
1: Uh, I did indeed, yeah. I mean, um, I'm showing my age here, but um, yes, when I first joined the Financial Times in um, 1987, I think, I was in my 30s then, um, but they still used hot metal.
0: They were, in fairness, behind the Times... Um, literally, um, literally behind the time
1: Literally, th- th- things things had moved on elsewhere, but it had to do with the the still existing power of the of the Fleet Street printing unions. Um, in truth, I worked on the Northern Echo, and they were still hot metal as well when I was there in the in the early eighties. Oh, so can tell um, you where the Northern yes.
0: Echo is. Where is it? Liverpool, the Northern Echo.
1: No, no. It's the northeast. It's headquartered in Darlington and covers um, all county
0: Durham, North Yorkshire, that that neck of the woods. Ah, so that would be to bring it back to Jackie Charlton, who was Ashington based. Yes, uh, that's that area. Did you get to Ashington? Did you cover the Milburn Charlton story? I didn't know. I mean, um, I became a sub-editor on the Northern Echo, so I, I used to go along to Darlington to get my fix, my football fix in those days. Ah, this was before the disreputable chap took over at Darlington. Do I mean I mean George Reynolds at Darlington? don't Yes, I? yeah, yeah. Which David Conn has covered in his book. But I'm I'm fascinated to learn about being at Nottingham University in the time of uh, prog rock. Did you go to the student union to see like Focus and ELP and Slade? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big music fan. I mean, I'm particularly remembering, I think my first first gig I saw there
1: um, were Richard and Linda Thompson, who I I, I mean, I'm still a huge Richard Thompson fan. um, And they had an amazing band there. The year before I went there, which was just 73. Paul McCartney and Wings had turned up in their very early days. They just used to
0: drive around. I think they had the first tour. They just used to drive around universities. Yeah, it was and a literal term, magical say, mystery tour. I yeah.
1: did one of those gigs at Nottingham and, and I always, obviously, you know, huge regrets I wasn't a year older.
0: <laughs> mm. The history of Crew Alexandra would be a good topic for a concept album by Richard Thompson because it's about youth and experience, and positions of power. I I will send Richard Thompson a note, because we are going to have to talk about what has been entwined in the history of Crew Alexandra. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that in the second half, so we'll get all the the on-the-pitch matters uh, out the way first, Uh, and thus we'll talk about Generation Game, which is your memoir. But also, is it like I spoke to Paul Bishop, who wrote a memoir which is twinned with the history of Watford, So he goes through the Watford sides and the great players and matches and then inserts himself into the narrative. Is that something you do with Generation Game?
1: Uh, My original intention with the book was to write a book about uh, the psychology of football fanaticism, um, because I realised that it played uh, a huge part in my life um, and also that of my family, um, because we've had three generations of football fanatics all all crew fans my grandfather my uncle and then me um hence hence the title of the book generation game and i really wanted to explore that and try to um explain football fanaticism using my family as a lens if you like to look at it and examine it and um then, of course, um, the book rather got overtaken by the child abuse scandal, um, and I had to change it. Um, but as you'll see, I mean, the vast majority of, of the book is, is concerned with uh, with uh, my initial theme.
0: Going micro-macro is always the best in any journalism. I know they teach at US journalism schools to focus on, I don't know, Brenda Blethyn. That's not her name, but just a, a random name. Uh, but you focus on a human interest story in the first paras and then widen out, stick in some stats. Here come the science and then bring Brenda back for the last couple of paras. So is that what you were doing? It was um, intrinsically a human interest story and about what happens outside of the 90 minutes as well as the 90 minutes itself. Uh,
1: the football, if you like, um... Um, in some ways was, was, was kind of a secondary issue in much of the book. I was, I was really exploring um, my own psychology, trying to explain myself. I'd reached um, the age of retirement. So I, I suppose I was looking back on my life, trying to make sense of it and um, explain why for much of it I was a bit of a basket case. Football had obviously played a huge part in this for good and bad. And it was, I suppose writing a book was kind of like self-therapy. It was also great to kind of reconnect with my family, which I'd largely forgotten about um, in terms of the relatives who died. And um, it's both a football book. um, It's a book about psychology. It's a book about family.
0: It sounds like it belongs in the genre of kind of, therapy football lit alongside My Family and Other Working Class Heroes by Gary Imlak, whom you may well know, uh, Mike Calvin's book Family, which is about Millwall, and of course Fever Pitch. Uh, I, I know you probably won't put it in that category just because you you sound humble, but would you, would you say that it would be uh, shelved among those?
1: Yes, yes, I would. Um, certainly. I mean, probably so many football writers of my age say this, that, that Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch was huge. Hugely influential. Probably that book was was the most influential of all on myself. But yes, certainly those other books. I mean, I think he he started that that tradition of of using football as a vehicle for self-analysis and for reflecting on the role of of football in um, in so many men's lives, and um, really, I wanted to expand on that and 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 see if I could add something to what these previous writers had uh, had already said.
0: Yeah, and I suppose today we were talking a day after the death of Claude from Arsenal fan TV, who, by virtue of having hundreds of thousands of people watching him on a YouTube channel, became a star. And from what I've read about him, he lost his mum, and going on Arsenal Fan TV and talking about the football team helped him overcome it. I'm not going to transition into tell me about your mother, but that is effectively, um, crew were a surrogate figure to you.
1: It was certainly a big factor, I think, in my football fanaticism. Yes, my mother died when I was 12. Uh, In some ways, that was clearly the end of what had been up until then, a very happy childhood. I used football really to hide from the grief, I think, um, because in those days, this was the late 60s, no one really talked about grief or bereavement in the way they do now. I mean, the death of Princess Diana was a a huge watershed in this country for how grief is handled. And um, and basically, nobody talked to me about it. Um, In those days, people were kind of embarrassed and would avoid people who'd been, you know, bereaved. I think I needed something to lose myself in. The grief was there, but I had to repress it uh, because I wasn't encouraged to talk about it. And deal with it in that sense. So the grief became totally repressed, and I needed things to distract
0: me from it. And and of course, football was was perfect for that. Mm-hmm. I wonder, was it because it was so close to the war? So there were loads of people who had lost parents. So it was accepted.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I've read that, for instance, the Victorians you know they're known for being so you know stiff upper lip and all that sort of thing but actually i don't think they were from what i've read when it came to death they were very much into big funerals if you go around graveyards and you see these amazing victorian um, tombs and gravestones family tombs etc from the victorian time they did ritualize death and i don't think they shied away from it But I think the First World War was a turning point. I mean, you're certainly reinforced by the Second World War. So many people experienced death and grieving after the First World War and Second World War. Somehow, as you say, it became more commonplace. And I think because of that, somehow people stopped talking about it. They just thought, well, yeah, we've just kind of got to get on with it. You know, this is happening to everyone, so why make a fuss? something we have to face and get on with. And I think that attitude um, carried on through much of the second half of the last century.
0: I do wonder, because we're we're more touchy-feely and in touch with things nowadays. I mean, even Radio 2 has a Sunday night show with Dr. Rongan talking about dealing with loss and coping techniques. Uh, but I think one of the things that will get Britain moving again is going to association football at all levels, professional and semi professional, uh, coupled with this anti obesity drive to kick a football around and run. One of the questions you ask of yourself in this book, Generation Game, uh, which you can get at your own website, charliemorris.org.uk, Charlie IE. Uh, but one of the things you ask, did football stunt your emotional growth? I think thousands of people, mostly men, but some women, uh, would. Join your club.
1: Yeah I came to the conclusion it did. I, um, as I explained, I think I used it as a distraction. I mean, my love of it was real, obviously. That was established before my mother's death. But I think then it became a very handy distraction. And um, I think you know because I just spent so much time thinking about football, um, it stopped me thinking about other things, you know, such as my career such as my relationships with women and in that sense i think it did i wouldn't say it was the sole cause of it i think i think my mother's death also played a part there in the sense that i kind of shut down on strong emotions because i was having to repress the grief not able to express it it also meant that you know well if i was i was repressing one strong emotion I also had to repress other strong emotions because if I expressed other emotions, um, it would lift the lid um, on the grief. So that was the primary cause, but football played a role in it because football became this means of distraction, this means of escape not facing up to other important things in life. Um, instead, I was too busy thinking about football. So um, I think it did. Um, and I'm sure that's the case for many men. Mm. Um, in a sense, I hope my book <laughs> will warn people against that. Yeah, like, a, like a set, set text.
0: Although I would, <laughs> I would like to know what happened when you were late for a date in 2004. Uh, did yep. that derail anything or did you live happily ever after?
1: We, we did live happily ever oh, after, but I, uh, I got away with it, you know, the skin <laughs> of my teeth.
0: <laughs> you just had to buy a much nicer wine.
1: Indeed, <laughs> uh, indeed.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, to go back through the generations, Generation Game is your book, Charles Morris. Your grandpa started as a fan in the very early days of Crew Alex in 1900. What tales did he tell?
1: Well, he um in fact he didn't tell me any tales about that time um which now I I I obviously hugely regret. I mean um the vast majority of what I discovered about my grandfather was years after his death. Basically, he became a fan when his father who was a train driver, moved to Crewe, which of course, of course. was um, one, of the, one of the great railway towns. My grandfather, they arrived in 1900, and that's when my grandfather began to support Crewe Alexandra. And he was just a football-mad kid. Um, he he joined the, what was, I think, the the third scout troop in the country. Um, when Baden Powell formed the Scouts, um, my grandfather played for the um, Scouts team, and he also had a trial for Crew Alexandra. And but um, so he was clearly pretty good. Uh, he was a fullback, and sadly got injured in the trial game, and that. Obviously, completely scuppered his chances. Um, Clearly, the formative experience in his life, um, in a sense, you know, my mother's death was a formative early experience in my life. Um, His formative experience was, in many ways, much more harrowing. He fought in the First World War. He was in the trenches for two years on the Western Front in, uh, in France, And it was when I researched his time there and discovered to my astonishment that he played and watched an awful lot of football, as did all the troops on the Western Front, and that football was one of their main leisure activities behind the lines. And um, there were leagues, there were cup competitions. The Rue Laban FA.
0: I read Paul Brown's brilliant book about um, people like Steve Bloomer
1: yeah and and I think this again, that experience um I mean clearly he was traumatized, badly wounded incidentally um, um, he had to wear a medical corset for the rest of his life oh i mean obviously, this is my interpretation, but it 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 fits um, the facts of his life, certainly, football for those troops was kind of a link with home, uh, and again, it became a distraction. Um, for them from the horrors that they were facing you know the, the normal routine for infantrymen was a week in the trenches and then a week behind the lines to recover they do some training and that's when they played football and so it was a huge joyful distraction the only bit of joy they had and I think this cemented football um, into his psyche, that this was something that had had saved him, in a way, and helped him join the most traumatic part of his life. And he came back um, and recovered, um, but one of the first things he did was take a part-time job with Karew Alexandra as the assistant secretary Mm -hmm. and um, work for them part-time for 20 years. And only stopping just before the Second World War, but remained a fan till his death at the age of eighty. Ah.
0: Uh, I'll ask about Uncle Jeff in a minute, but I just wanted to know where Crew were playing. Were they Southern League or Third Division South or Third Division um, North? Where's the divide? Because Crew is the divide.
1: Yes, it is. It is. They were Third Division North. Um, yes, I mean when my grandfather began supporting them, they were playing in what was called the Birmingham league and then I think um, I think they joined the combination league just before the first world war uh, the third divisions there was a third division north and third division south came in in 1921 I think that's when he joined the club that's that's the reason they needed him they they needed more backroom staff because they'd stepped up to this fully professional level
0: And who were the stars of the team in the 20s and 30s?
1: Well, um, no real stars in the 1920s, um, I would say, um, worthy of note. I mean, the the first, and perhaps in a way, um, the only real, genuine superstar to play for crew, you know, when they were a superstar, we've had players who've gone on to be superstars, but this, the only one to join the club as an established superstar was um, Fred Keener. Ah,
0: in from Cardiff. Yes,
1: in 1930. And he'd had this glorious career he was the captain. at Cardiff. He'd taken them to within something like 0.26 goal difference of winning the league championship when they were just pipped 1925, um, something like that. Um, he'd take them all the way from the Southern League, as captain, up to the First Division, pit for the championship by the tiniest of margins. But then, I think two years later, in 1927, they won the FA Cup and created history as the only non-English club to win the FA
0: Cup. Yeah, this story and- is told, I should add. Um, James Layton wrote a book because he said why has there not been a book about fred keener we got the statue why isn't there a book and it's an amazing story that james told and i didn't realize he went off and on to crew where he was captain as well
1: yes yes that's right and really um transformed their fortune i think we finished fifth or sixth a couple of times in the years he was there um, he was pretty old. I mean, he was—I think he was 36 when he joined, or something like that. He was, it was—it was the twilight of his career. So he really improved the team. But I mean, the gates just increased hugely. I mean, they almost—he um, was such a superstar. I think they went up from something like 3,000 to 6,000. And um, and James Layton tells a story that um, on the rare occasions that that Fred was injured, crew daren't announce the fact in the press that he wasn't going to play because they <laughs> they knew this would take a couple of thousand off
0: the gate. That's fascinating. Um, and this probably happened in the 50s and 60s because, of course, the the sigh when someone like, the role of Stanley Matthews today at number seven, oh, no, but we've only come to see him. Um, yeah. That's, that's wretched. Uh, and then, of course, war breaks out. Um, yes. By this time, I imagine your dad had had kids by the time of the, the second war?
1: Um, and my grandfather. Yeah, yes. sorry, your grandpa.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. My father was born in 1921 and his younger brother, Jeff, was born in 1923. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, who, who who became the second football fanatic, he really, his formative years watching crew were the 1930s when he had the likes of, uh, of Fred Keener um, and then um Swindells, who is still the record goal scorer. He's the only player ever to score one hundred goals oh. for crew. He had a wonderful formative years really, which is, as I explained in the book, part of what what cemented his fanaticism.
0: Was he born with a disability or did that come to him later in life?
1: No, he was born with it. Um, I think my grandmother had a difficult birth, and he was born with a deformed right arm. wasn't You know, it wasn't a terrible disability. He 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 learned to write with it, but the arm never had much strength. He he, kind of always held it against him, kind of resting on um, on the right side of his waistline, if you like, was his standard you know position for him. But he was there's no doubt he he inherited his father's ability at football, and I think sport in general. And he he adored sport. He wasn't particularly academic like my father, and sport is uh, particularly football is what gave him. I think, a sense of self-worth. Um, he was much better at it than most of his peers at school. And even despite this disability, he was very good at it. But he would have been a better player um, if the arm hadn't hadn't been disabled. I mean, clearly it plays a part in balance and strength and uh, and that sort of thing. But he he never used it as an excuse. He never talked about it. I mean, I was... Very, very close to him up until the age of eighteen, and we never discussed it once. Mm-hmm. The only person who ever discussed it was his mother, my grandmother, who told me about it
0: mm-hmm. so Uncle Jeff was a football fan. What was wrong with your yes. dad's? What did he do instead
1: there 's a strange pattern in the family, which I mentioned in the book i mean my great grandfather, um, Fred, the train driver, um, had had four daughters, one who died well, really very young in infancy, and and two boys. One of those became a football fan, my grandfather, the other one, Ernest, wasn't interested in football at all. Uh, Harry, my grandfather, then also had two sons, my father, David and Jeff, and only one of them became a football fan. And my Father David also had two sons, and my elder brother Rich was never particularly interested in football, um, and I became a fanatic. And um, and my father just said, I mean, my my grandfather was clearly determined to to inculcate you know his sons into football, and they went very very young. I mean, my father they were going well when they were something like four and two. And my father remembers it vividly, but he just really lost interest. As he, as he said to me, I found better things to do on a Saturday
0: afternoon. Uh, I'm just, yes, absolutely. Yeah, things got more interesting in, uh, in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, that, so the football gene does exist. How fascinating. Uh, but 50% hit rate... That's not bad for both your grandpa and your dad, to get one out of two. I um, got into football around Euro 96, so I was eight. And then I had the kits and the FIFAs and the championship managers and reading sports supplements, uh, which I suppose I have to turn to now before I forget. Um, We're discussing Generation Game, Charles Morris's memoir of being a fanatic. When you were at the Financial Times in 1987... Football, as we know, was a slum sport played in slum stadiums, watched by slum people. <laughs> what was football coverage like in an era where I think there was something called Rule Rule Thirty Four had just been ripped up, which meant that fans, at the clubs, had more of their home receipts, and thus bigger clubs that got bigger and bigger.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, it was I suppose. Suppose the late eighties was the the start of a change i mean um I mean you're right i mean from the through the seventies and and the first half of the eighties um was the growth of football hooliganism the grounds hadn't been changed uh hardly um since before the war. The football was fairly defensive and dull. And this, of course, culminated in the, in the great tragedies, the Bradford fire, of course, um, the Haysall um, Stadium disaster, and it all culminated uh, in, in the tragedy.
0: Yeah, but yes. they were warned. Why in 1988 did the media not sound the alarm and say something must be done or people will die? in the next semifinals
1: that's a very good question i'm not sure i know the answer i think it was a case of um then now the media is obsessed with football um i mean the national papers carry four or five pages on it per day football channels cover it widely but that really wasn't the case then um there just wasn't that level of interest in football it 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 had crowds had really slumped um, also i mean i think the sort of mid 80s were the were the sort of low point really i mean you had the sort of surge in the 20s and 30s and, and post war yeah. after the war there was a massive rise in crowd attendance as well and 1966 the world cup also gave it a boost but Crowds had really slumped during the 70s and 80s. It was really the media were just reflecting um, the loss of interest in football. And as you said, you know, um, that memorable quote, um, I've forgotten who said it. Um, but I think it was the editorial. Sum, that summed up the view of football, really. It was just a very ugly game. And, uh, and the transformation into the... And I mean that, you know, yeah. uh, the football was rather dour the crowds were badly behaved there was a lot of hooliganism the stadiums were were really awful uh, as it turned out exceedingly dangerous so football was very very badly regarded and the and the transformation in, in how it's regarded over a matter of only two decades is quite extraordinary
0: yeah and that's all covered in certainly the financial times but there was it was twofold wasn't it because also there was this uh, upsurge of football can be better and also the coverage can be better uh, off the ball when Saturday comes and Supporters Direct, Football Supporters Federation got involved. Um, what happened at Crewe? Because obviously Crewe were selling on loads of players for profit and, and we know and we will discuss what went on at Crewe. Uh, but huh. from the crowd's perspective, was the football better under Grady?
1: Oh yes, miles better. Uh, um, I mean, just to put the history in context, um, basically, I'm back to the, from the Second World War on, onwards, crew struggled greatly during the late 1940s and 1950s. You know, we were always in the bottom. Um, at the bottom of the fourth um, well um, firstly third division north and then and then the fourth division when that was established, applying for re-election, God knows how many times. Oh. Um, there was an upsurge in the 60s. we had our first promotion in 1963 and when you think the club was founded in 1877 and its first promotion wasn't until 1963. It must it have been dancing in the streets. Well, indeed, indeed. Yes, I mean, I was just a bit too young to remember that, sadly. But then we had our second promotion, 1967, I think. That I do remember, and that was my first real euphoria and my first experience of of genuine euphoria in my life at the game when we sealed sealed promotion against Luton. Yeah, and then it was downhill um, during the 70s. The club almost went out of existence same in the early 80s um, and then Dario Gradi arrived and um, in 1983 he had a vision as to how a small club with no money could thrive and um, he realised that um, around Crewe there's a kind of huge catchment area because you know we're close to Manchester we're close to Liverpool Uh, We're close to the Potteries, Stoke-on-Trent, etc. So there's a big catchment area um, for young players. And he just basically had this vision that um, instead of buying second-rate players, um, which is all the club could afford, why not make our own good players? And so he began a youth scheme um, of attracting talented young players, boys, to come and play Fortunately, um, he was both a genius at spotting talent and, and he was also a genius of a coach. So the business model became we develop these youngsters, sell them on for a huge profit and then develop the next crop, sell them on for a big profit. And of course, the model worked, worked brilliantly.
0: Along with Fred Keener and Mr Swindells, who are the nine players you would rank Above all others, in a best eleven, in a formation of your choice.
1: Bert Swindells, Herbert Swindells. Um. Well, yes. Gosh. Um.
0: Oh, can I, I, think, can I, I suggest Bruce Grobelar in goal?
1: Oh, oh, certainly, certainly, yes. I mean, he only played half a season, but but without doubt, um, he is the most outstanding goalkeeper we've had. Um, Crew was his his introduction to English league football. I think he came on loan from Vancouver Whitecaps obviously got spotted at crew by liverpool yeah i mean he he was he was a wonderful character at crew um uh, the great story is in the last game of the season the last game he played i think it was against york city from memory um and it was a nothing match there was nothing at stake and crew got a penalty and bruce ran the length of the pitch grabbed hold of the ball, said, I'm taking this, and nobody argued with him, and uh, and he scored.
0: (laughs) I didn't know that, but then I haven't read his book, Life in the Jungle, which I really ought to. That is in the football library. I have a very high threshold for footballers' memoirs, and, yeah, anyone who fights for Matabeleland, his book goes in. Uh, Just look at some of the best-of players. I can't see many defenders in my little list.
1: I mean, right back, I would have Rob Jones. The great um, Rob Jones, yes. Yeah, yeah, the great Rob Jones. I mean, I mean, again, you know, he only played a short time for Crew. I remember his first game coming on as a substitute, and he really looked about fourteen. I mean, I think he was probably 17 or something, but he was playing in midfield then. But then Grady converted him to right back. He just really played only a handful of games at Crewe um, at the start of the season. And the story goes that um, Graham Souness was a manager at Liverpool and either himself or one of his scouts, I can't remember which, came to Crewe to watch another player. That they were thinking of signing. And, but either sooner or the scout, whoever it was, were just blown away by Rob Jones and signed him. And uh, of course, the rest is history. He went on to have this wonderful career with Liverpool, with England, and it was sadly cut short by injury. Mm-hmm. And I think he had to retire at the age of 27.
0: Oh, was it that young? I only know him because of Soccer AM, because uh,
1: yeah. Tim Lovejoy yeah. would say
0: Rob Jones, who hasn't scored for Liverpool for nine seasons, but then that's not what he was in the team for. Yes. <laughs> so um, so who'd you put next to Fred?
1: Probably I'd put Stephen Foster, who you might not have heard of. He, uh, he never played in the Premier League. He, he got as far as the Championship um, and played for Barnsley for many seasons. He was tall, he was fast for crew, I should say, um, during the 1990s in the Grady era. And I think into the 2000s early on, yes, when we were playing in the Championship. A fine player at Championship level.
0: And who is next to him at left back?
1: Well, it has to be Seth Johnson. But oh, of course,
0: he was a left back, not a central midfielder. Yeah.
1: Well, he played both. I mean, he played both at Crew, and I think he was equally good in either role. Um, he mainly played at left back for Crew, and then I think in his heyday in the Premiership with Leeds, etc. I think he played he played more in midfield, and his one appearance for England. I th- think was in midfield but I, I could be wrong there but I mean very effective both areas wonderful passer great tackler really really had everything you could want in a left back and, and scored goals as well and again um, like Rob Jones his injury was sadly cut short
0: yeah his career cut short now you're spoiled for choice in the midfield Robert Savage, Gilfie Sigurdson, Aaron yeah. Lennon uh, yeah. David Vaughan.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's this. This was the hardest of the lot, really. I mean, eventually, as my as my sort of defensive midfielder. Yeah, it was either it was either Neil Lennon or Robbie Savage, and I've I've gone for Neil Lennon um, just because he was he was the more cultured football. I've got a huge amount of time for Robbie Savage, but, but, um, and he was a wonderful defensive midfield player, despite his sort of pantomime village, um, um, villain. He knew what
0: he was doing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I think he was a great showman as well. And, um, was a great entertainer for football, but Neil Lennon had it all. He he was uh, a, a strong tackler, very strong defensively, but a wonderful passer of the ball as well. And um, and not only stopped. Stopped opposing attacks. He would always launch counter attacks with these wonderful long diagonal passes, etc., um, or shrewd through balls, and, and scored goals as well for Crew. I mean, less so as his career went on. He seemed to move deeper and deeper in his time with Celtic. So he'd be my defensive midfielder, and alongside him, um, if we're doing a sort of four-three-three formation. Um, well, one of them has to be Danny Murphy, I think, in some ways is the most cultured footballer I've seen at crew um again as a midfielder, he had everything wonderful a hundred percent commitment um a marvelous incisive passer, scored goals as well, had wonderful power in his shooting and and could score long range goals um very good at dead balls as well, free kicks. He's definitely one of my favourite crew players of all time. When
0: you see a player like Danny Murphy or indeed David Platt, can you mm. tell that one day they can play for England and at the elite level for one of the enormous teams?
1: In general, about myself, no, I don't think I can. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've got that that insightfulness about football um, that perhaps you know maybe other fans can. Um, Murphy is about the only player. I've seen a crew who I've thought that of. He's the one exception to my rule, mm. um, where, yes, um, seeing him play, I did think he could go on to play, play for England. But i failed miserably with, with, uh, with all the other internationals that uh, the Grady era produced.
0: Yeah, but there's so many from that academy. Um, and I suppose yeah. David Platt comes in at number 10.
1: Uh, he does he yeah. does indeed i mean he he very good playing up front as well, um which he did for Aston Villa quite a lot and um um but yes, I think midfield was his strongest strongest position yeah. and um he he was yeah i mean at crew he was just outstanding um in 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 grady's early years, he was the first great player that Grady produced
0: and this is sorry this is from the 1980s so the pitches mm, would have been horrific so would he just appear even better because the pitches were so horrific
1: sure I mean they were they were ploughed fields and and certainly Grusty Road in those days come the sort of final third of the of the season there wasn't too much grass on the pitch and that was, you know, the same everywhere. And um, yes, so I think it does speak highly of these players. Platt, for instance, he was playing in midfield for Crew, yet certainly was very often the top scorer in his season there. I mean, again, he was... He was I mean, Grady described him as a jack-of-all-trades. I can see what he means. I mean, I think he meant it as a compliment. I mean, normally that phrase is completed by jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Um, so it, it, it's not always the greatest compliment, but he was just very good at every aspect of the game, um, which is what made him such a great player. But um, his goal at the 1990 World Cup, which, of course, everyone remembers, the extraordinary volley uh, um, from over his as the ball came over his right shoulder to score for England in the... Um, was it the quarter-final or the round of 16? I can't quite remember, but I'm, that showed he was more than a, a mere jack-of-all-trades.
0: Yeah, and he, of course, had he not scored that goal, Gazza wouldn't have cried and got famous. Um, wow. Well, and then, so yeah, but for David Platt. Indeed. So, indeed. so you've got two slots left, flanking Bert Swindells.
1: I mean, if we're going to include Bert Swindells, and I suppose we should. The other, I mean, there's a striker alongside him. It has to be Dean Ashton.
0: Another one like Johnson and Jones just had that well, horrific injury on duty with England. But I spoke to Daniel Hurley, yeah. who's a West Ham fan, and he said if Dean Ashton had played for West Ham, he would have taken Wayne Rooney's place for England.
1: He was an extraordinary player. Uh, um, he was one player when playing at Crew. I did think, oh, he's he's definitely going to the Premier League. I didn't think he could didn't didn't you know necessarily think then. That he could play for England. I mean, the, the, perhaps one thing—if you—if you had to say one thing he lacked was was, was blistering pace, um, perhaps. But apart from that, as a striker, he had everything. He had size, power, immense power in both feet. I mean, um, on YouTube, there's uh, there's a sort of sequence of his best goals, and they really are quite extraordinary. I mean, they're like a sort of lesson for any striker you know the goals he scored you know while at West Ham and um and playing in the Premiership etc Norwich and and, um yeah I mean very very sad I mean I think it was his first England call-up was it where he got this freak ankle injury and was was never really the same again but I think he would have gone on and played for England many many times and um would have had a truly truly great career
0: uh-huh. Uh huh. we talked earlier about promotion from the third tier in 1967 well Crew did it again in 2003 Dean Ashton was playing for the team but it was Rob Hulse who scored 27 goals that season so I wonder yes. if Rob Hulse is also in your best 11 because of it
1: uh, he's not but, um, but only because the other one who I feel I can't exclude I mean certainly Rob Hulse would be one of the substitutes yeah number 12 but... yeah The other one I have to include is Stan Bowles, of course.
0: Oh, I didn't Um, know he played for Crew.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, he he started his career at Manchester City, was just outstanding, a real star. I mean, this was the time of the sort of, you know, Colin Bell, Mike Summerbee, Francis Lee, that that sort of era. Um, But um, um, he was a bad boy. His gambling addiction had become... Um, um, started young Um, he also um, fell out I mean he had a fist fight uh, with Malcolm Allison basically they got rid of him and he went to bury and much the same happened there. And he was um eventually signed by cruise then manager, uh a guy called Ernie Tag, wonderful name, who was cruise manager through most of the nineteen sixties, so after Grady. Is probably Crew's most um, successful manager. Although um, Dave Artell um, is starting is starting to push him hard, but and he signed him and just said, "Look, son, this is your last chance." Ernie Tag paid Stan wages to his then-wife, um, then Anne, um, paid them directly, because he knew if he didn't, most mm-hmm. of the money would, uh, would go to the bookies. Mm-hmm. And being away from Manchester, this um, transformed him, really, and, uh, and he became a wonderful player. And unfortunately, the club was so broke then, they, they accepted the first paltry offer for him, which was, I think, £12,000 from Carlisle. I think he only played at Carlisle a season, season and a half, and they sold him on to, um, I, I think it was Queens Park Rangers directly then, and um, for oh something like one hundred and twenty thousand pounds. So you can see how much crew missed out on, yeah. but they were just so broke they needed the
0: money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, he would he would have to be in a uh, complete my team.